All right, so we're actually going to do Ecclesiastes for the Sunday series after October. So we're going to do the five solas for October and the first Sunday of November. And then we're going to go into Ecclesiastes. So I've been looking at Ecclesiastes, which is in the wisdom literature section, which renewed my interest in the Job narrative because it's the wisdom literature and connected and I was trying to decide what to do for Wednesday next and I couldn't get Job off my mind so you just got to stay in my mind with Job that sounds weird but we're going to look at Job for a few weeks we are not however going to do with Job what we just did with Hebrews because if we did that with Job for one <laughs> it would take a few years I think uh, was it John Owen is famous for preaching through the book of Job and it Took him 485 messages, I think, to, to get all the way through. We're not doing that. So best case, it's going to take us three weeks. Worst case, seven. It just depends on how we break up the next bit. Um, tonight's kind of the introduction. And we are exclusively looking at Hebrews from a high-level position, answering or at, talking about its major question that it asks and its major answer, which is, and we'll talk about the term theodicy, in a few minutes, but that's that's what we're going to be looking at is um, Job from the perspective of theodicy. If you have no idea what a theodicy is, don't worry, you will in a few minutes. That'll make perfect sense, but that's what we're looking at. So you can go ahead and grab your Bible and head over to Job, but I want to go over this first piece um, in the outline before we really dive in. And so just find Psalms and you're halfway there. Back up a few pages. Find Job chapter 1. All right, so let's fill in the first few blanks here. Have you ever heard of the problem of evil? This expression familiar to you. Yes, no, not getting a lot of feedback. You've heard this. If you've watched television, the problem of evil has occurred. You, you've seen this, movies deal with this. Uh, atheism is built on this. Um, this comes up all the time, and so there's some basic elements to the problem of evil, and here's what we mean. So, number one, and this one shouldn't be that difficult, um, but evil exists. So that's your first point. Evil exists. Now, really, you've already become a theist by making this statement, but most atheists won't recognize this, um, because by saying evil exists, what are you saying about the world? Well, okay, there's a standard or something's wrong. Well, wrong is a moral claim. Evil is a moral claim. But even by saying that evil is a thing, and if you, if you find a real atheist, and when I say that expression, real atheist, I'm not talking about the guy who doesn't believe in God because he, God let his mom die. That's not an atheist. That's a theist who's mad at God. An atheist that has, I'm not going to call them legitimate, not in a real sense, but in a certain sense, legitimate logical reasons for why they don't believe in God. They actually struggle to use this term because they recognize if they say something's evil, they've kind of conceded to Christianity already. They've conceded to the idea of a sovereign God. They've conceded to the idea of morals. But the reality is, how many people believe evil exists? Everybody. We, we, we know this, right? We know that there are things that happen in life that we could rightly say 
That's not right. There's something wrong with this. In fact, the whole idea in the Sermon on the Mount where it says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you know, we, we like to think of that in terms of you know, merit-based righteousness, that they're hungering and thirsting to be before God counted worthy and counted righteous. That's not really what the word means. Righteous is they want to live in a world that is correct. They want to live in a world where things go the way they should. They want to live in a world where good does flourish and evil does perish. They want to live in a world where parents do die before their children. That sort of thing. They're hungering for that sort of reality. That's the idea. We know that evil exists. And then secondly, to have a problem of evil, you have to have the other piece, and that is that God exists. Now really, to say evil exists, whether you realize it or not, you have already made the second claim, that God exists, and there are two basic things about God that we're saying when we think of the idea of God. And this happens in movies a lot, uh, whether you're Christian or not, we just have certain things that if you're God, then you must also be. And number one, the most important, most common, is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. Now, who knows what omnipotent means? All powerful. Omni, all potent, powerful. We can use potent in certain ways, and you can think of it that way and think about how powerful that is, and there you go. Just remember the word. All powerful. Now, to say God is all powerful is to say that God can do what? Anything. Basically anything. Now, we've, we've talked about there's limitations on what God can do. God can't lie. God can't not be God. God can't do anything that's contrary to who he is. But in a certain sense, we say that God is all powerful. Or in the ancient confessions, um, this is the expression. We believe in God the Father Almighty. That, that's the idea. All Mighty. Exact same concept, just different words. So God is almighty. He can do everything he wants to do. He, he can do everything that almightiness means he can do. He can do it. Then second is this assumption that that God also must be omni-benevolent. That one doesn't get used as much. So again, omni-all-benevolent. What's that make you think of? good. Look, that's all it means. God is all good. He's all good. He, he, in other words, when we say good, we do usually explicitly mean nice to people. Right? And God isn't necessarily omnibenevolent if that's how you define the term. We have to be a little more God-ish in our understanding of what good is. But these are the basic presuppositions. The problem of evil starts with these four pieces. There's evil, and there is a good God who can do anything he wants. Well, so, I mean, what do you think the problem then is? God is good, why is there Yeah, if, he, if he's good and can do anything he wants, well, what's one thing he could do right now? He can make evil not exist. That's the problem of evil. It comes in many forms. Um, I think the Superman movie is the most recent super big pop culture. They even stated it almost this verbatim. Um, Lex Luthor talking about Superman. Y'all remember that movie? Y'all care about that movie? It was Batman versus Superman, actually. It was the second one. Um, the, the dumb one. But anyway, like this exact expression happens in this. Well, well, we, 
is real popular in pop culture to address this. And sometimes people feel like they're really smart because they figured this out. Because it's new. Except it's not new. Because we're fixing to read a part of your Bible that is dealing with this exact scenario, literally. This exact question, the problem of evil, and it's the book of Job, and... Where does Job fall chronologically in Scripture? Do you know? Abraham. Well, the story predates the Scriptures in terms of if this happened in Abraham's time, how much Bible has been written by the time Abraham is around? Zero. Zero. So before Moses pins Genesis, we've got a story dealing with what question? The problem of evil. So you come up with this like, oh, man, look, God can't exist. Look at this framework. Well, guys, the oldest piece of your Bible is about this question. It's not new. The Bible has an answer to this question. And this is the key word. So I think this is the next spot. I call this a global theodicy. That will make sense in a minute. But let's just define theodicy. Let me give you the word first. Theo. What is theo? Anybody know? That's Greek for God. So what other words do we use Theo in? Theology, study of God. All right? And it's funny. That looks like dice. It has nothing to do with dice, by the way. Can we skip a blank? We skipped. Oh, we did skip some. Yeah. Sorry, that's what happens when I don't look at my paper. Can I give you this one, though, because I'm like in the middle yeah. of it, and then I'll come back. So, all right, so Theo, I don't know that we have a good English equivalent of this, but this is the Greek word for just. In other words, a theodicy is a what? It's, it's a statement of, no, God's just. God is good, even though he's all-powerful and God exists. So the card is like, well, how can God be good? And evil exists, and him be all-powerful. Any way you answer that question is a form of theodicy. And the book of Job is just the theodicy. Now, it's it's not what we want it to be. And the, when we get into this, you'll see what I mean. We, we want it to say things it doesn't say. But that's what we're going to discuss, is what is the Bible's theodicy for the problem of evil? You follow the, the, the question? All right, well, let's see what we've missed. So either God is able, but not willing to stop evil, therefore God is not good, or God is willing, but not able to stop evil, therefore God is not God. There's no, what, what do you mean to call something God if it's not omnipotent? So God is either not good or he's not God, based on the problem of evil. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now, with all that in mind, let's dive into Job. That's the question Job is dealing with. There's nothing remotely new about the question. It has literally been around since there has been evil. This is the question people have been asking. And so the first oldest story that we have in our scriptures as an attempt to give you a biblical answer to this question. So here we go. Job chapter 1. 
verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So to summarize that, what is Job? He's righteous. He's a good guy. Nothing wrong with it. So what the point being, the events that follow, Job did not merit them is the point of the story. Now we can get into well, what about total depravity? It never it's not what Job is this this book isn't concerned about that. That's not the question. In this sense, no, we're saying Job's righteous. Job's a good guy. Not only that, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. So seven and three is ten, but seven significant, and you'll see why. He possessed seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. So what's the basic idea here? He didn't have any male donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, that's not the main idea, I don't think. Yeah, it's like, what's going on with that? He was like the best of the best. I don't understand what he was. Yeah, I don't know. Like, and, and while those exact numbers, again, not the point of the story. Um, the point is, he's he's Bill Gates. You know, he's Warren Buffett in their world. He is not only filthy rich, he's ridiculously righteous. He's just a great guy. He's got money. He's got a family. He's got resources. He's got honor, integrity, all of that. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. So seven sons, how many days in a week? Seven. So seven days in a week is old. Well, why do you think there's seven days in a week? Creation. Creation. This is just a cool thing to me, because a month is a month because of the sun, I mean the earth the moon going around the earth, the day is a day because of its rotation, a year is a year because it goes all the way around, but there is no astronomical phenomenon, period, for a week, other than the creation order itself, and this is the most ancient story in the Bible, not even a creation story, still seven-day week, it's awesome, sorry, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, just uh, interesting. Before, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Like it, like I said before, that was this book actually about Sabian, so that was yeah. very special to me. And that was, but I was looking back on it when it says blameless and upright. Okay, we're not talking Jesus-esque. I mean, I, he's not I, perfect. Right, right. exactly. That, okay. Now, I just always was curious about the wording. In yeah. That, that so, was, so the Book of Job has nothing to do with soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, how one gets saved. Right. Your, relative level of righteousness next right. to God because Job would still fall into the category of Romans chapter 3 there right. is none righteous, no, no, no not one but the book of Job is not giving us a story about how to get saved right. it's making sure we know that the events that happened to Job in this story are not directly his fault, he didn't do something to incur the wrath of God to make these events happen that's the whole point of making the statement and that's just really as deep as it's going it's just not going further than that all right, so verse, where are we at? Verse 5. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God, and in their hearts thus Job did continually. So just over and over this cycle. So he's 
weekly, basically, offering the sacrifice to the Lord, and not only for himself, but also for his children. So what role is he playing in his family? Priest. He's a priest, exactly. He's, he's the priest to his people, his own family. I would also include his servants that he has many of. He's, this is his regular weekly routine. Now, there was a day, so we've changed settings. We've left, left the earth. We've gone to a new scene. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, that is the adversary, also came among them. So the sons of God is a common expression in the Old Testament to refer to who? Angels. Angels. Whatever the divine counsel is, this group of beings that are ruling, in a sense, with God. And so they come together. They're hanging out with God. We're having a, a cosmic staff meeting. And Satan is there as well. It says, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered to the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down. Now, what do we know Satan's already done at this point? We get to call it a fall, but specifically we know he did a super specific thing. Well, he's had the conversation with Eve in the garden, right? I'm just trying to be super specific. You thought he had to fall before that. Whatever he did happened before that. But, I mean, a recorded story in Scripture we know by this point he is at the very least already tempted Eve, right? And here he is. He's the the adversary, and now he's he's there among the group. God asked him what he's been doing. He's been roaming around, presumably doing what? Right? More temptation. Right? Exactly what we saw him doing with Eve, and he warned. God warns Cain the same. If you don't. You don't watch it, Cain sins. It's a crouching lion. It's ready to, to pounce. And who's the embodiment of sin and evil in the world? It's the adversary, the Satan, Satan. And so he, he's around doing that. And so the Lord said to him, the Lord's speaking to Satan. So who starts this conversation? God starts this conversation. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Job? What, is, what does Satan do? For a living, so to speak, he tempts people. He tries to bring him down. And what's God asking Satan? Have you looked at this guy over here? Have you tried Job yet? So whose idea was this? It's God's idea. All right, what's this book designed to do? <laughs> Answer the problem of evil, and that is the first step. Wow. Okay. All right. So so God starts the conversation with. Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So now it's not just the, the narrator saying Job is a righteous man. Who's saying it now? God is. God's very happy with Job. Job's doing a very good job. He's turning from evil. He's upright. It says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God? For no reason. Now, what's what's Satan accusing here? He's an adversary. Who's he speaking out against? God. Actually, God. He's speaking out against God. What's God doing wrong, according to Satan? Protecting him from the... You're giving Job everything he wants. You bless. He's the richest guy in town. Of course, he's going to do whatever you say. He's not going to bite the hand that feeds him. Uh, he he loves you for the stuff. 
Okay. Satan's making this accusation. Let's see, where, what verse are we at? Uh, verse 10. Verse 10. So, have you not put a hedge around him? And that's where that hedge expression comes from. And, and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. You have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So what's Satan saying will happen? He's, he's talking to God and it's as though he can convince God of something new. But let's just pretend. Let's come down to Satan's level and, and see how God's working with him. And it's kind of like a kindergarten talking to an adult and trying to have a, a real... A, a real conversation and it's really just one has condescended enough to, to have a conversation and so God's having this conversation and what's Satan essentially trying to convince God of? Take away the stuff. Take his stuff he will leave. He's only here for the stuff. So, poor Job this is what happens let's see verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan behold, all that he has is in your hands only against him, do not stretch out your hand. It says against him. You know the story well enough. Against him, what's that mean? Don't his body. His don't mess body. with his body. You can you can take everything else he has. Well, what does that include so far? Everything. Well, it's, it's the livestock and the houses and the money, but it's also it's people, right? So Satan's being allowed to touch somebody's body, just just not Job's body. He can, he can get these other people. So only. Against your hand, do not stretch, or against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, you know how the story goes. Let's just walk through it a little quickly. It says, well, before we do that, let's fill in the next blank. So we, did we do theodicy and explanation or defense of God's nature in light of evil and sin? An explanation or defense of God's nature in light of evil and and sin. All right, so we're going <coughs> to, as we walk through this, we're going to see how the Bible handles the big picture. This is what I mean by global. From a very high level, kind of peel the curtain back. What's the big picture theodicy that the Bible gives us? Well, we can already pull one of the components out right now. The Bible ascribes total sovereignty to God. So Satan is having to do what before he does anything to Job? got to go get permission. <laughs> well, in this case, what was the answer from God when Satan asked for permission? Go get it. In fact, whose idea was it? It's God's idea. So the Bible has no hesitation, no concern, no worry even to give God total, absolute sovereignty in all circumstances. All right, and let me, let's finish those blanks and then we'll weave back into the narrative of Job. So sin and evil both serve God's good purposes in the world to magnify his glory. And we see this throughout the scriptures. One good example is in Romans um, chapter 3. The, right before he quotes that long list of Old Testament quotations, none is righteous, none not one. He says that even, and we're paraphrasing, but even when you sin, you glorify God. Do you remember why or how? There's two ways your sin glorifies God specifically. Well, that, that's one thing, but that's not the scenario in that verse. But that is a way he gets glory. His, his work of grace and goodness over sin 
magnifies his glory. But even without forgiveness, there's two specific ways sin glorifies God. Justice. Do I? Justice. Okay, justice. So meaning God will pour out his wrath and fury on sinners, and that makes him look good because he's doing justice. It's like it's the reason I love to watch the movie Man on Fire. I get really excited every time Denzel Washington kills one of the drug dealers. I just, it makes me happy, you know, and it makes me like Denzel Washington. It's just the idea. But God gets glory by killing the bad guys. So it's one of the ways. The other way is the more you sin, the better God looks in comparison to you. Does that make sense? So it's like when I played ping pong in college, I had a large oriental population. And my goal when I played ping pong with those guys was to score. And, and I mean, I, not they made a mistake and I got a point, but like where I did something and made a point. If I happened one time in a game, I was happy. Well, then I, I came back down to Gaucher and was playing with, you know, 17, 18-year-old kids who'd never had any competition. And it was like, wow, I'm so good at ping pong. <laughs> no, they were that bad. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? But... There's a relative distinction made between how good God is by our sin. So we can glorify God by sinning. And that's, of course, where Paul has that same statement, well, should we just sin more? So that, And he's like, no. He has to spend a lot of time unpacking that. No, because you don't want both sides of that. I make God look good by sinning, and then God makes himself look even better by destroying me. So no, not a good life plan. But both of those scenarios are happening. But we see sin and evil... And both serve God's purposes in the world to magnify his glory. Another good example is in Genesis, if you've been going through that narrative. Um, what is, do you remember what Joseph says to his brothers at the end of the book when Jacob dies and they're worried? Now that father's gone, Jake, uh, Joseph is going to unleash his fury on us because we sold him into slavery. And what was Joseph's response? Do you remember? He meant for evil, God meant it for good. Yeah, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And he uses evil things. In fact, the best example of this in scripture at all, what's the most evil thing that ever happened in all of creation? The most innocent lamb being slain that has ever existed, Jesus Christ himself. But whose idea was that? It was God's idea. It was God's plan. It was plan A, not plan B. So God uses evil and good, I mean evil and sin, both to serve his purposes in the world to magnify his glory. This is the whole testimony of scripture. Um, number four, um, God clearly, and I'm going to explain this, but let's fill it in first. God clearly willed that sin would be possible in placing Adam and Eve in the garden with two trees. What could God have done when he made Adam and Eve and put him in the garden? The tree somewhere else. I don't want, I don't want him to touch this tree. So as a parent, if I had, you know, Blaze in the room and this, I do not want Blaze to touch this thing. I don't leave it in the room with him. But what did God do? He, he specifically put it in there with them. And then, like, I'm telling you, if I told my kid, if I put brownies in the middle of the room, and I said, Blaze, do not eat those brownies. Well, now, not only were they in the room to tempt him, now I've made him think about it. And God has explicitly made sin possible in creation. There's really no denying this. You, you can't look at this any other way. Did God just make a mistake? 
Was this poor planning on his part, or was it his plan to for the option of sin to be on the table? And at the bare minimum, that's God's plan A. Plan A is you have the option in the garden to sin. This is our God. And we, we see the same character here in Job. He's giving Job an opportunity here to curse his name. See that? He, he knows the formula so far in Job. Hey, if I just keep blessing him, everything will stay the same. If I let Satan tempt him, then what Satan say was going to happen if, if he messed with him? He's going to fall. He's going to curse your name. And God says, okay, we'll do it. Let's see what happens. He's setting up the scenario so that the possibility of sin is present. This is biblical. It's all over the place, actually. This is literally the second story in the scriptures. Creation, Adam and Eve, puts them in a garden with a tree they can't touch, can't eat from. This is the story. So, well, I'm looking at the time. We'll, we'll see what we can do. However, in spite of all of that, the Bible only recounts the beginning of sin, not its origin. Let me explain the difference. God did not make Adam and Eve sin. We're told ex- expressly in the scriptures, there's no darkness in God. God does not sin. God does not do evil. Anything that he does that even from our perspective looks evil, it's really him doing some good purpose that's only evil from our perception of it. But anything that is truly evil, God himself does not do, such that who committed the first sin? Not God. Adam and Eve did. But when we try to press that question, well, why? If they were truly innocent, they have no sin nature yet, where did the sin nature come from? From their sin, right? So, like, Adam and Eve did not come into the world with an inclination towards sin. We could say they were truly neutral. They were innocent. That's what we mean when we say innocent. They're not fallen yet. If they were inclined toward evil like us, so we always say, well, if I went back to the garden, now we'd be in a much worse scenario. You could hypothetically say Adam and Eve, maybe it at least felt like there was some potential here. There's no potential with you in the room. You're inclined towards sin. No question. You eat the fruit. Guaranteed. With Adam and Eve, they're, they don't have a sin nature. Why did they eat the fruit? The Bible does not answer that question. We know that it was God's plan that they have the option. That's plan A. That's by design. They have the option of eating the fruit. But the Bible does not say why they did. We know why we sin. We're inclined towards it. So the Bible stops short of saying God did this, but it does give God a lot of culpability in the scenario, but not in the event. Now that's nuanced, but do you see the difference there? And the Bible does not answer that question at any point in time. So what's the answer? I don't know. <laughs> we don't. We really don't know the answer to this question. We can we can argue it all day long. You can read book after book after book. The Bible does not answer the question. We just know that God set it up. 
certainly allowed, permitted, designed even for it to go down this way, but he didn't possess Adam and Eve and make them choose. They chose. And they were innocent when they did that. And we don't know what the ultimate cause behind that was. We just know that God's responsible for the setting. You with me on that? This is this isn't just Brian theology. This is this is long time um, scholasticism dealing with this. I mean, the church has been trying to work through this question for literally 2,000 years, and so the, the church theologians push back and they get this far and they try to peel back the curtain and they realize this is if you like physics, we've entered the quantum realm, and unlike I love Marvel, but the quantum realm in reality and the quantum realm in Marvel are exact opposite of one another. Quantum literally means you can reach a point where you physically, physics physically, cannot go smaller than that. You can't open up the quantum realm because it's literally the bottom. And from a human perspective, we've been pushing in to this question for 2,000, technically 6,000 years. And no one goes past that point. We get to this final piece. Hey, God made the setting, but why did they do it? Why did they choose sin? Don't know. So that's the global theodicy. Now, the reason I want to emphasize the global theodicy is because does that make you feel better about evil at all? I mean, in the heat of the moment, no, this doesn't help me at all. You know, when my toe is throbbing, if I had, you know, 50 kidney stones or whatever, you know, like, I don't care (laughs) about that at the moment. I'm upset that I'm experiencing suffering today. Job's not asking the question in the story, globally speaking, where did evil come from? The question he's ultimately going to ask isn't why evil, it's why me. Isn't that the question we actually care about? Yeah. Whatever, go for it. The Bible is essentially silent on that topic. And we just don't know. So from a biblical perspective, the Bible is only concerned with our role in the narrative. And it just doesn't care that much really about Satan. He's called the author of sin. He's a liar from the beginning. And statements like that, but... But with the but being kicked out, and then that's how... And even when we say kicked out, but kicked out in what way? Because he's, I mean, he's invited to the council here. That's what I'm saying, but he is the attempt and he can promote the sin, so... Sure. I mean, that's like, I know. Yeah. But there was no, there was no plan for salvation for Satan and the angels that... Yeah, okay, so what what we'll get into is if we start discussing the problem of evil from a global perspective. I want to get into the local, because that's what the story of Job is about. But when when you have the global conversation, the most important piece you have to recognize is the Bible doesn't give us a true theodicy in the sense that it legitimately gives us the actual answer. It gives us a lot of benefits. Well... There's a lot of good reasons that sin could be in the world. There's a lot of good consequences that sin could be in the world. It magnifies not only his goodness against sin, but it magnifies um, our ability to grow. 
You know, so evil makes us, so there's a bunch of arguments. There's the moral argument, the soul-building argument, the eschatological argument. It all pans out in the end. It was just part of the narrative. You've got to have a bad guy for the story to be interesting. You can come up with a lot of reasons that it's useful for evil to be in the picture, but the Bible doesn't say any of those are the primary, this is why God wanted that in his plan. Or this is how he put it in the plan. We just know that it is in the plan, and that it does have some certain positive benefits, but we do not know exactly the, the nitty-gritty of how that came to be. It's in the mystery category. And at the end, and what I'm trying to say is at the end of the day, if you had a good solid answer to the global theodicy, it still wouldn't make you feel better when God destroyed your family. Because when God destroys your family, you're not concerned about how evil got into the world. You're concerned about why it's wrapped around you. Does that make sense? So the Bible has a lot of answers for local theodicies, but it never really gets, doesn't open the package all the way for the global theodicy. Other than we know God's not evil, he doesn't do evil, but he clearly made evil part of the plan. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's 732. We're... <sighs> I'm going to go a little further just because I don't want to end right here in the middle. Let me just fill in the next few, and then we'll just read the rest of the paragraph and hit the main idea. All right, so most people are more concerned about the evil and suffering in their own life than the general existence of evil in the world. Because of that, the book of Job provides a local or personal theodicy to help us walk faithfully before God during suffering. Does that make sense? During, right, in the midst of. So the book of Job is giving us a framework to think about how we walk in suffering in the, in the heat of the moment and in the suffering itself. So let's just real quickly walk through how Job responds or what happens and then how Job responds. So verse 13, Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the serpents, servants, with the edge of the sword, and I um, alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another. What? It's just a people group from that Arabic area um, during that time. Well, we'll run into one more of the Chaldeans. Right, when he was speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God, which is probably lightning, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head and fell on the ground and what would you expect him to do next <laughs> weep but what's the word say worshiped. he worshiped and then specifically to say he worshiped is this he said the next verse and he said naked i came from my mother's womb i still said it you laugh naked i came from my mother's womb and naked shall i return the lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed 
be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So he did charge God with responsibility, but not with wrong. You see the difference? Mm -hmm. That yeah, God did this. God, God's the reason I lost everything, but God did nothing wrong. So let's fill in these. Um, so what is Job doing? Number one, he's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. So we should acknowledge the sovereignty of God in our situation. And second, we acknowledge the character of God in the situation. Yeah, God's in control, and through God's sovereignty, he let, willed, allowed, whatever word you want to use, this happened under his sovereign control. Yet, God is still good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So acknowledge the character of God in your situation. Step three, trust the plan of God in your situation. So he falls down and he worships. Naked I came in, naked I'm going to go out. So I guess that's the way I say it, Jake. I don't know. Um, it's a southern thing. My wife makes fun of me too, though. So I don't know. All right. God's plan is going to happen, and I'm going to play my role in it. He's just trusting God with it. And then we'll see. This is where it's going. We don't get this in this verse. Um, lean on God for strength in your situation. All right. And what I, I just want to close with this, and it's going to set us up for the rest. Job makes this statement now. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You fast forward a little bit into the book. Is that still Job's attitude? It's not. He, he falters on that a lot. He gets mad says, God, I, I did not deserve this. Um, you have wronged me. In fact, I want to have a face-to-face -face meeting with you, God, and we're going to hash this out. And God does have that face-to-face -face meeting with Job. And do you remember Job's answer? Oops, sorry. <laughs> Ooh, wow, I'm dumb. And then he rests, and you are God, I am not. Trust God. The difference, so Job makes the correct statement at the end of chapter 1. But that's something he believed in his head. He didn't believe it in his heart yet. You know the difference? You, you, you walk through weeks of this suffering, of the drug. I mean, he lost his kids that day. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, I mean, we know a lot about grief. Is, is he really settling into the depth of his sorrow just yet? No, no this, hasn't, this hasn't really weighed on him yet. He has no idea how dark his days are coming. And it only gets worse. But then he comes out on the other side with the exact same answer. But the difference is now he believes it here. So what we're going to see in the book of Job is what does it mean to believe that here? Not just, oh, God's sovereign, I trust him. Yeah, but do you trust him when it comes down to it? And that's what Job is going to help us work out. All right, so... There we go. Only eight minutes late. It's not too bad. Question. I have a question. I'm in um, Homework as well with the Odyssey. The Odyssey. <laughs> All right. The Bible reads out the beginning of 10 and not at. Origin. Okay. That's a nuance in systematic theology, but there you go. We just wrote the whole chapter. Yeah. So if we follow the rules as stated, <laughs> yes. Yes. Individually. Each of you get to... Oh, you, please don't just report one. Okay, let me pray for y'all. God, we thank you for tonight. We pray that this uh, study through Job would be useful. Help us to trust you as we walk through suffering. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
How old are you guys? 